0: All it takes is a click to listen to RTI online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw.
1: This is Radio Taiwan International. Thanks so much for joining us today. Up ahead this hour, it's Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight. But first, we take you over to a brand new edition of Here in Taiwan. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Here in Taiwan. Today is Thursday, April 16th. I'm John Van Trieste and joining me here in the studio, more than a meter away, is Shirley Lin. Hello. Up next, we'll be hearing about how COVID-19 is bringing Taiwan's sports scene to the world. Then Bach to the Rescue, how Taiwanese musicians are using the great master's work to calm and heal a world filled with jangled nerves. And we'll also be hearing on today's show why some of Taipei's manhole covers are getting a makeover. All that coming up next. Please stick around. up today, though, we're going to be hearing about how an altruistic alumnus is helping his 100-year-old school.
2: We're talking about the uh, Zuo Elementary School in Tainan City, and it's celebrating its 100th year this year. And and someone who's an alum uh, there 49 years ago, uh, his name is Huang Qing He actually, um, you know, is from, was from a poor family. And uh, he only graduated uh, after finishing junior high school and then started working, making money, uh, making, you know, living for himself and I guess for his parents and family. So he's now the CEO of his own company but uh, he decided to come back to the school to celebrate with the school but also brought with him this brand making champion Wu Baochun. Now is Wu Baochun also uh, an alumnus? Yes, okay. he was also an alumnus and they've known he's, each other for 10 years. Really? So he's
1: very famous this bread maker.
2: Yes, but I'm I think I, can, I think he's younger, much younger than okay. uh, Huang uh, Huang Xianxen, Mr. Huang. But um, but anyway, they, they've known each other for 10 years and so, you know, they decided to go to the school and and celebrate its anniversary together okay um basically uh like i said uh mr huang was from a poor family and then uh he's also a very keeps a very low profile of himself basically he's already donated like millions
1: of dollars to the school NT dollars or u.s dollars uh, to NT dollars dollars so it's a bit more of a modest figure than it sounds maybe yeah at least hundreds of thousands of U.S. dollars. Right, right, right. And in Taiwan, that's a that's not. I mean, our income levels are a bit lower. Um, mm-hmm. That's not. That's nothing to scoff at. Right, and also he's also provided a lot of different resources to the school, like
2: um, uh, these. Um, you know, these hanging fans for ceiling all the fans. classrooms. Ceiling fans. Yeah, we're talking about the ceiling fans. Do they, and they not he's have also, air conditioning? Um, I don't think so. They're in it the south of say. Taiwan. That's gotta be miserable. It's gonna be hot. Yeah. And um, uh, you know, I think it's a small school. And then he also donated for uh, these, um, you know, home appliances for making waffles. Why would the school need waffle makers? Well, I mean, he really wants the kids to experience the fun of making waffles, you know. And <laughs> I think it, that is this inspired by his relationship
1: with that baker. I'm is there, just is guessing. It to make that's
2: a, that's what I can guess. Train get get some future ch- chefs, you know, right. started on the path. So I guess that he donated waffle makers, okay. and then chun taught him how to make the waffles. Well, don't you he, think? There's no better person to learn from. Right. I think he's won some major international awards. Hasn't oh, he? many, yeah, and and also actually Wu Baoshun, of course, brought his champion bread to oh. share with the kids and everything. Yeah, and then he also, um, you know, decided that he promised Mr. Huang promised that he was going to pay this violin teacher who violin gives violin teacher? lesson. Yeah, violin. Yeah, teacher okay. plays the violin, uh, so that the kids can learn the violin. I think it's really a small school that doesn't have much resources Mm. and funds and so um, at least You know, this is something, I'm sure, out of the ordinary and, uh, you know, nice surprise for the kids. Is that they're going to be able, something they never thought they would be able to
1: learn, Hmm. is that they're going to be able to do so now. Lots of people um, in Taiwan, especially kids, learn violin. Yeah. Uh,
2: It's uncommon. In the city, Um, (laughs) mostly. Or the the piano. But I
1: think a lot of them are probably from better off backgrounds. It sounds like this may be a poorer part of Taiwan. Yes, I
2: think their families are probably more disadvantaged in you know, low-income families. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, Mr. Huang himself was one uh, right. before. And um, anyway, so everybody knows that Mr. Huang is very low profile. He's just a very. He's a great philanthropist, you know, he's a generous person Self-made and everything. Self-made man, too, you said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he really wants his kids to be able to learn all things that they can. And together with Wu Baocun, you know, they're telling the kids never to give up, you know, and always to be able to do things to uh, contribute to the society. Hmm. And for that matter, Wu Baocun told a story about Mr. Huang, how there was a kid who actually got into medical school, but he couldn't pay his way for school, because, you know, he's poor, and his, his parents are poor. But Mr. Juan decided to pay him all the way through medical school. And um, then after this kid graduated, he came back and said, Well, how can I pay back to you? He just basically told the boy, well, man by then, um, to, to just do well on his job and give back to society that way. Wow. Yeah, think about how he's contributing right now um, since
1: we're in the midst of this outbreak. I'm right? sure that's an a investment that's paying its dividends many times over now. But it's nice that we have such generous people all around us in our midst here in Taiwan. over to the world of sports and actually uh, one of these stories may be of interest to you Shirley, because i know you've done a report on this recently we're talking about the baseball league here uh-huh. that's where we're going to start off today okay um well, why don't you explain to everyone at home who maybe didn't see your video about uh the very interesting innovation that our league is yes that is
2: right we're talking about the rakuten monkeys and um uh they just started uh, the baseball season just this past weekend. It was made possible because um, basically they're not allowing any humans in the audience. But um, to cheer them on, they could cooperate with a a robot company. And they have these robot mannequins in the audience. They got 500 of them to cheer them on. And there were ones that can actually hit the drums. and, And I don't know what else they could do, but I'm sure they can, I don't know. Not Probably not due to waves. Due to wave. a little bit hard.
1: <laughs> but you never um, making know noise. The state yeah. of robotics today. It yeah, is a little bit right. creepy, but um, as this report <laughs> indicates, the baseball season here is on, and it's one of the only ones, I think the only one, in the world so mm-hmm. far. And they're, we're going to, I think, for the first time ever, get English commentary. Did you know about this? Oh, No, I didn't know. Um, it's very popular, uh, this sport here in Taiwan, but usually the you're, you can only hear the play by play in Chinese. Right. Um, and, but Richard Wong, who is a veteran, uh, huh. of baseball coverage here, covers the major league baseball in North America in Chinese, but for Fox sports, Taiwan oh, okay. and Wayne McNeil, it doesn't say where Wayne McNeil is from, but, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, sounds like a native English speaker. They're both mm-hmm. apparently going to be working on this project and it, uh, may get, uh, some international attention because the last time that. Our baseball was broadcast to an international audience was more than 30 years ago. So, no, really? I think, and I'm not sure what the occasion was uh, actually, but. Well, I'm
2: thinking maybe they're temporarily out of work, and so that's <laughs> something that it could do, In, you know.
1: In place of uh, what they're missing out, but I think that's great. Right, and it doesn't say here if this will be if this will also be available internationally. It sounds like it might though. Uh, This is going to be on eleven the eleven Sports Network. I'm not sure if I get that at home.
2: No, Um, I don't. I get ELTA. That's the big sports
1: one here. That's sort of our version of ESPN almost. Uh All the sports games are on there, Um, and they have more than one channel. There's an ELTA like two, which is very obscure competitions. (laughs) um basket weaving i don't know It's just <laughs> everything you can imagine that you can have a competition with they cover it and uh but starting i think this has already begun actually because like you said the season is underway now mm-hmm. um and we are the only baseball season in the world that's happening so the idea is um that they're going to try and introduce taiwan baseball to a wider audience and it's supposed to reflect not only uh you know that Taiwan is filling a need because we have baseball and no one else does but also to show that it's possible as Richard Wong says the commentator that uh to overcome this epidemic and that uh, Taiwan is doing a pretty good job. I mean, we may not have fans, but we at least have robots. The stands (laughs) are not empty. Um, Then we're going over to cricket, which is a sport that isn't quite so widely followed here, but I don't know if you knew this. We have a cricket association. It's called Taiwan Cricket, very imaginative. Mm -hmm. It's not government-recognized, but it's got uh, uh, at least six teams or sides. And we're going to actually, it looks like, uh, maybe have our cricket league Shown on Indian TV. Oh, wow. And in India, it's a big deal. And there, the cricket season seems to have been postponed, but it says in this article, possibly canceled. So if you know what the latest is, please write in to let us know. We just have this article in front of us here. Um, Up to five sides could play in this competition that would be going on to TV in India. Uh, It doesn't really name who's going to be broadcasting it. It looks like it's going to be internet streaming companies, though, because... Uh, it says one platform based in Mumbai contacted Taiwan Cricket asking for rights to stream the games in Taipei to its, as it puts it, cricket-starved audience, which it puts at 75 million people. So oh. I wonder what channel that could be. Hmm. I guess they're not allowed to name names until right. it goes through. Um, and then yet another India-based live sports streaming platform was seeking a, quote, Taiwan-Cricket partnership. So uh, this will be very interested. They're also looking into but basketball and soccer in Taiwan. Okay. Oh, we have baseball to offer as well, so we have a yeah. full selection. Um, th- it says there are at least six teams, like I said, um, and we have a cricket ground actually in Taipei, which I did not know. It's oh, very okay. Under the radar sort of sport.
2: Well, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that either. Although I've come across a small group of like looks like grandpas and grandmas playing cricket, and on this piece of grass that they found um,
1: right by a riverside park. Oh wow! Yeah. Now we have actually a proper cricket ground. It's okay. called the Yingfeng Cricket Ground. It's in the Songshan District of Taipei. So the
2: one I saw couldn't be it. <laughs> I don't.
1: I'm, it sounds like okay. it's a bit more professional grade. Uh, okay. So our teams are, and you can decide who you want to root to, root uh. for. Uh, the Taipei Cricket Association, the Pakistan Cricket Club Taipei, the Shinju Titans from Xinju, I guess. They're further toward the south of us. Uh, large South Asian population there. Yeah. Uh, because it's a tech hub, and we have a lot of engineers and people working. Right. There from, right. Exactly. Um, also the Taipei Dragons the Indian Cricket Club Taipei, and the Formosa Cricket Club. Um, so they're still in talks, it sounds like, the Taiwan, Taiwan Cricket is asking advice from the teams themselves and Taipei-based broadcasters to see whether a deal is even possible. Uh, but, uh, they also hope to sort of upgrade our infrastructure for Cricket. Apparently, We'd they could use some. That. Yeah, I don't think it's something that has a lot of investment in it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hoping to start broadcasting. It says Saturday next week, but this article is a bit dated. It may already have been a lot, gone out already. So, right. uh. Yeah, I'm really uh, excited to hear that our cricket league. I
2: know, really. Maybe
1: they'll become more popular in India than they are here, because mm-hmm. I don't I don't think many people here follow cricket. But uh, our sports are fill, filling the void. Taiwan can help, as we often say. <laughs> Speaking of other ways Taiwan can help, dozens of musicians now in Taiwan and also overseas are taking part in a music relay challenge have you heard of a music relay challenge before mm,
2: mm, mm, no no on musical instruments or yeah yeah well uh, yeah? not, not some of them are singing oh, it okay, sounds like okay, so, okay.
1: Okay. there was an acapella thing but um it's just, the idea is that everyone I don't know if they challenge each other, like to they hashtag someone, and I challenge you to follow this up. It's one of those challenge things. Oh, those kind of things. And the idea is to create variations or versions of J.S. Bach's musical offering, which is a a very wonderful piece. I love Bach, and Mm. I think this is a great way to give give musicians something to do because performances. We have baseball, but like no, really, I think theater or the arts, right? Keeping themselves entertained are kind of. Shut.
2: Yeah, Um, I mean, people are really getting creative, you
1: know, ways to entertain themselves
2: and entertain, well, the public too, of course.
1: I think even bigger than entertainment, I think the idea is is healing and comfort, a healing, yeah, to calm people. And I know,
2: like a side point, um, you know, CNN now has thirty second calm. Oh, yes, I uh, love that. <laughs> yeah, they have, you know, um, I mean, they show some video, but then they also have
1: some nice music in the background. The music and... has been out of control for some time. So uh-huh. You just really need that. Every yeah, and then. yeah. Um, but um, this was begun by the National Kaohsiung Center of the Arts, or Wei Wuyin, to and uh, the director says that in the face of our fight against the pandemic, our goal is to communicate, connect, and comfort through music, and that remains unchanged. And they can't perform on stage, but uh, the director says we can still spread our thoughts on music through the internet. And that's what they're doing. Um, so this director then played a short theme score and invited musicians to take part by uploading their own videos of them playing either the whole piece or an excerpt of it in its original form, or they can be creative and make their own arrangement. Uh, that hashtag for those who are interested is hashtag musical offering, which as we said, is for the National Gaoxiong Center for the Arts that's spelled W E I W U. Y i n g.
2: Well, it's a long word. Uh, yeah,
1: but um, it's they've gotten more than as as of I think last weekend, more than forty groups of musicians had responded, and uh, so there was a Taiwanese pipe organist who had played it actually at the the Wei Wing's concert hall on its pipe organ, which happens to be the largest in Taiwan, mm-hmm. uh, and played the theme score. And but then. There was there was some more interesting and, I think, creative renditions. There was a piece on Chinese instruments, a rendition, an arrangement of it. It was three minutes long, played by a group called the Yunshu Yachu Ensemble. And the Kaohsiung Symphony Orchestra did a jazz version. Oh, wow. Which is, I don't know how that works. but The Jew Percussion Group probably was my favorite. They played on those whacking things. They're like the pool noodles, and each one plays a note. Okay. And they kind of... Hit uh-huh. them and they each one pl- play, produce. Anyway, All right. they did a video of that. Uh, also, a group called the Semiscon Vocal Band shared an a cappella version. And there have been overseas musicians, including a British pianist Steve Beresford and composer Stuart Hancock, who have shared their versions too. So, in this time of crisis, uh, Taiwan is reaching out for music as well. Yeah, music is comforting. It is, especially the work of Bach. Very nice. Mm. manhole covers necessary and often ignored uh the only place i can think of where manhole covers have ever really attracted much attention is in japan Um, oh yeah i think uh some people who who have traveled to japan or may have know something about japanese culture know that uh, a lot of local like municipal governments will sort of beautify the area by painting and carving their manhole covers with uh elements of local culture or festivals or features or even monuments uh well, you know, I, I, I also no-
2: like to notice, um, you know, pay attention to these manhole covers here in Taiwan on Taipei streets. Right. It was years ago, um, you know, uh, you know how we try to find, pic- take pictures of different elements that's very Taiwanese. Right. And then post it on our Facebook or whatever. Mm. And I used to post a lot of manhole covers yeah. that I find interesting. But most of them are,
1: I have to say, in Taiwan are still rather plain. But yes. What-
3: they are,
2: We're compared taking... to the world, of, I mean, the rest of the world. But, oh, there are some nice ones in Hualien, though.
1: Uh, yeah, but I, I think by and large, I'm saying, like, people just sort of don't pay much attention to them. Oh, I know.
2: no. Well, you know why? Because I like to look down when I walk oh, on the okay.
1: streets. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh. why. Are you watching your phone? Um,
2: <laughs> no, it's because I don't like to step on dog poop. Oh.
1: Uh, very practical. <laughs> actually, I'm with you there, but only near where See? I live. Um, but actually, we're taking a, a, a page from Japan's book, at least here in Taipei. And uh, we have eight different covers that feature local characteristics, apparently separated by district. So mm. each district of Taipei seems seems as getting its own one. Uh-huh. Um, it's a project called the Taipei Manhole Cover Design Exhibition. That's an extension of an earlier program from 2012 that was trying to get this starting and I guess they didn't really take off Uh because it's been a number of years and I still think they're pretty bland mostly but they're trying again (laughs) Uh, four designers have taken part and they've drawn their inspiration from, okay so it says here there are four districts in Taipei, Nangang Wanhua, Datong and Zhongzheng and they each one has a uh, local elements from the district so with wanhua which is a place known for its traditional culture uh, there's mm. a lion dance mm. and datong has its dadao chung district which is almost as old as wanhua and uh, also oh, yeah. very uh historic lots yes. of very Trading old buildings there Ford kind of yeah uh, the birthplace of taiwan's tea exports as well right 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 so um they all reflect one of them Though, or some of the entries that they got were designed, and I don't know how this works. There's no photo attached. They were designed to particularly reflect the street view as seen from the perspective of the manholes. Oh, so I guess it's like reversing oh, your perspective. I uh-huh. don't know. Uh, you get to see the sky or something. I don't know. Oh,
2: now you got me going. I want to go to those places and see those manholes. I, oh, wait, are they they already?
1: Well, I don't know if they're going to be actually put into place. They've been made, though, with the help of Japanese experts, by the way. So we are learning from some of the best and also some foundry, I guess, the Uh places where they're made, the forges. They will be soon made public, though, on a Facebook page. Uh, To find it, type in Taipei Manhole Cover Design Exhibition. Okay. I'll be interested to see what kind of advertisements pop up on my I know, same <laughs> here. After you look that one up. <laughs> All right. Well, that about does it for today's edition of Here in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste, and I'm Shirley Lin. Don't go anywhere just yet. Coming up next, it's Lights Camera Asia and In the Spotlight. Lights, Camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of
4: cinema.
3: Hello and welcome back to Lights, Camera, Asia now in the past few months that we've been doing the show we've looked at films made in taiwan and in the last few weeks we've shifted our eye to japan and look at one of their modern classics the departures starting from this week we are going to once again shift our attention to another continent to hong kong china we're going to look at a film which is arguably one of the most well-known and most highly acclaimed film that's ever come out of Hong Kong, which is In the Mood for Love, or Huayang Nianhua, as it is known in Chinese. It is a romantic drama film written, produced, and directed by Wang Kar-wai. Wang is one of the most well-known Asian filmmakers around the world. He is just darling in the independent film scene. And I think for very good reasons. See, when you think about it, most of the well-known films are known for their epic set pieces, historical plots, or action setups. In short, most films that I want to know are big blockbusters, but Wong doesn't make those films. He's known for making slow paced, beautifully shot and painstakingly edited, well-crafted and poetic films. Among the Chinese audience, his film is very often known for their exquisite setting and memorable quotes, which often, in very short sentences, sum up the character's mindset and the situation that they're in. For Western audience and film critics, although the beauty of the language is lost somewhat in translation the beautiful costumes and cinematography and the way his camera lens moves to tell stories is highly acclaimed. And this one is arguably his chef, dove, his masterpiece. Opened in 2000 at the Cannes Film Festival, um, it was nominated for Palm d'Or, which is the equivalent of the best picture at the Oscars. And uh, Tony Leung, which is the uh, main actor of the film, uh, was nominated and eventually awarded for Best Actor, making him the first actor coming out of Hong Kong to win the award. According to many lists compiled by both Asian and Western film critics, In the Mood for Love is frequently listed as one of the greatest films made of all time. In 2016, in a survey conducted by the BBC, it was voted the second best film of the 21st century uh, voted by 177 film critics from all around the world, and at this point, you might be thinking, "What well, just what makes this film so great? What makes it so universally praised, not just in Asia where the film is made, where it's culturally better understood, but also by Western audience?" Well, in the following couple of weeks, we're gonna again make in-depth dive into the film in order to try to find out for ourselves what makes this film so great. This week, we're going to look at the film's plot and arguably, more importantly, how the film tells its plot. In the upcoming weeks, we're going to look at the film's imagery, its very highly acclaimed, the costume design, the way director Wong kar uses music and how he tells story through the use of music and convey a different mood. And the cinematography, how the film is shot. So, without further ado, let's get into the world of In the Mood for Love. In a title card sequence at the beginning of the film, the movie maker directly tells us the time and setting of the film story. The year was 1962, and this story takes place in Hong Kong. The film opens on a rather noisy sequence, as you just heard a moment ago. It is moving day, and the movers are bringing in books, furnitures, appliances for two different families who are moving into two neighboring apartments. Now, to help us better understand the film, um, it is worth noting that Hong Kong is a very, very small place. It was back in those days, it is more so now. So, people, even people with families tend to move into very small apartments. And at a time where Hong Kong hasn't seen the economic boom that is seen in later years, in 1962, several small apartments on the same floor are often managed by one same landlord. And you will often have a nanny uh, that's shared by the several uh, people who occupy these several apartments. And you will often have a cook that's also shared by the people living in these several apartments. And in some cases, people, tenants... Uh, in these apartments have to come out and share one toilet and one kitchen when they want to cook. So um, this very uh, different housing setup sort of give the tenants in these apartments a lot of opportunities to run into each other and to socialize. And much like those who live in a small village, people who live on the same floor, who live so closely to one another, can very easily know the schedule and the whereabouts of their neighbors. Because by living so close, you simply can't help but seeing when your neighbor is going off to work and when they come back. And by extension, you know the wife and husband they have, the attire that they dress in, the kind of job they do, etc. So it is on this moving day where Mr. Joe, our male protagonist, meets Miss Chen. They're both moving into this new apartment building and they're about to become neighbors. They give each other each a brief introduction and they move on with their lives. But obviously, the story is about a change in a fashion that neither one of them can expect. Accompanied by a beautiful music score, uh, we see a montage a with slow motion where people walk in and out of a room where they play mahjong, which is like a chess game. Like I said earlier. Since the tenants on the same floor tend to know the same landlord, they tend to socialize with one another together and uh, playing mahjong, uh, especially among the people in Hong Kong and in southern China, is a very common way for people to sit down and socialize and talk with one another. And it is in this sequence that we see the husband of Miss Chen, which is Mr. Chen, for the first time. Except we don't much see him. We see him from the back. And we see Miss Chen amicably hugging him while they're playing a the game together. In a quick conversation following that we hear that Mr Chen frequently has to travel outside of Hong Kong to Japan for work. In this particular moment towards the beginning of the film, he's about to set off again, and Miss Chen asks him whether he has to go for that long to Japan, to which he responded, Well I have to go, the boss asked me to do so. Although, due to the limitation of this radio show, you can't see the sequence visually, and uh, I guess some of you probably don't understand the language, but I guess from the subtle tones of the actors and the actresses, I bet you can still hear that Miss Chen is much more emotionally involved in this partnership than her husband is. He seems somewhat aloof, distant towards her. Bye-bye.
4: Bye-bye. Oh, like.
3: And in this sequence, following that, we see the wife of Mr. Joe, which is Miss Joe who made an appearance for the first time. Although just like Miss Chen's husband, Mr. Zhou's wife also doesn't show her face. We see her through a window making a phone call to her husband, asking him to take a vacation out so the two can go on a tour. And she jokingly says, if we don't travel and if we have to wait any longer for this, I'm going to go with someone else. In this short sequence, we can see or rather hear that there is subtle uh, difference in tones of uh, these two in a couple as well. Mr. Chen is patient, amicable towards his wife, and the wife is a little impatient on the other hand. At this stage, we can tell that the two neighboring couples, although they seem okay on the surface, clearly are each having their issues.
2: I In the
3: following sequences, we can see that the partners in each couple get to see one another less and less often. Between Mr. and Mrs. Chan, the reason seems apparent, at least superficially so. Mr. Chan has to travel to Japan more and more frequently and for longer and longer durations. And alarmingly, he seems to care about this less and less. On the other hand, Mr. Joe seems to miss the schedule to... Uh, Pick up his wife uh, once she gets off work, and in a rare sequence, Miss Chen and Miss Joe meets in their home. Like I said, their neighbors, and they run into one another at a very unusual hour. Miss Chen said in the conversation we just hear just now that uh, she didn't expect um, Mrs. Joe to return to home so early, and uh, her tone seems hesitant and her eyes gleaming. It seems like she has suspected something. I'll save you the suspense. Something has happened between Mr. Chen and Ms. Joe. They're having an affair. We'll continue our coverage of the film's story in the next week's episode. For Lights, Camera, Asia, I'm Jake Chan. Thank you for listening.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In The Spotlight.
2: Hello there. You've just tuned into In The Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Today my guest is Charles Du, who is a NASA engineer turned yoga teacher. He's from Beijing, Um, but he said that when he was nine years old, he moved to the States with uh, his parents. And uh, he studied uh, aerospace engineering at the uh, University of Michigan, it was. But anyway, um, he's been around the world. Um, I've just jumped a big jump here <laughs> because um, he's done a lot of things. And uh, um, the thing is that grow or growth is a big word. It's a very important word to him. So, well, anyway, let's first um, say hello to Charles. Hi, Charles.
0: Hi, Shirley. Hi, everybody <laughs> that's listening.
2: right. Anyway, so what's this thing with grow, you know, or growth? And um, you're a yoga teacher. Well, it's all really interrelated. So you take it off from here.
0: Yeah. So I think growing myself is um, one of the things that I think a lot about. Um, I believe that every day we're changing and we're either growing or we're dying. Now, once we acknowledge the fact that we're changing and we're either growing or we're dying, then I think through strong intention and practice, we can kind of focus on the area that we want to grow. Now, I think a lot of people talk about how, oh, of course, you know, I want to grow. But I think about how much people actually invest in their growth, um, because I think there's an art and the technique uh, to it.
2: Reading up on you, there's a lot of things that I've never come across, especially like this growth thing, you know, that you want to help people to grow themselves as well as yourself and all that kind of stuff and so I mean how did you get to this point are you a very philosophical person or or what growing up
0: (laughs) yeah I think um, two events woke me up and then set my path down to just being growth oriented Uh, the first event was experiencing Burning Man uh, a few years ago Um, I don't know if you ever heard of Burning Man Shirley no okay so it's basically this a crazy festival um, in the middle of the desert in Nevada. It happens once a year. And once a year, around 80,000 people from all over the world get together and they build a temporary city and a temporary community. So I was fortunate uh, enough to attend four of these um, temporary community uh, festival events. And the second time that I went, I had this period of growth. Um, I was in my late 20s. And I can still remember, so this festival runs for, for 10 days. Um, and during these 10 days, people kind of build different camps and they have lots of different workshops. Um, and then there's no money being exchanged. So basically, it's like an open and very free environment where you can kind of learn or experience whatever you kind of wanted. It's kind of like a uh, adult camp for 80,000 people around the world in the middle of the desert.
2: But first of all... Um... How do you apply for this? I mean, do you apply it just like that? Or yeah? how do you get involved?
0: Yeah, so they sell tickets. And um, in order to get picked for a ticket, uh, you go into a lottery because every single time the tickets always sell out. So I went to this 10-day festival. And then uh, at the end of the festival, um, or during the festival, I just felt like, oh my gosh, I'm getting so many new ideas. My mind was just like, it was, it was flashing. And I I can still remember like, it was a certain feeling, and it was a feeling of growth. The interesting thing is after I left that festival, uh, that feeling kind of stopped. So during that festival, I had this feeling of a growth spurt. And then when that happened to me, I was like, man, that felt really good. You know, I I feel like um, I had lots of new ideas. I have lots of new perspectives on love, on, on the world, on, on growth. I want to get that feeling again. So that was the first event where I had a feeling of growth. Mm. Um, And what does that have to do with
2: Burning Man? (laughs) Well,
0: I think Burning Man, so this is a great point. Um, So later on, I was like, all right, how can I get that feeling back? What was so unique about Burning Man that kind of gave me that feeling? And then that's when I had my first epiphany, which was, it was the environment. You know, it was the fact that I was in the middle of the desert. I was in a strange new world. And I was surrounded by people who were all very open, very willing to share. And I just had so many interesting conversations. So something about that environment just made me grow naturally and put me into the state of growth.
2: So that festival was called Burning Man?
0: Yeah, it's called Burning Man. Wow. Yeah.
2: So you weren't the only person who experienced that spread of growth, right?
0: Yeah. So this festival attracts a lot of really famous people. Like um, really? Larry Page, Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, uh-huh. uh, they often tend. Um, when I went my fourth burn, I saw Elon Musk. Fourth burn.
2: Okay. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Did yeah. you get to talk to him?
0: I didn't get to talk to him. Um, I, I kind of respect his privacy and I just noticed <laughs> him. And I was like, hey, that's Elon Musk. And he was also there with his uh, wife at the time. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So a lot of Silicon Valleyers often go to Burning Man because they m- may have experienced the same growth that I have
2: yeah that is so cool so so after you came away from four times of burning man event then you you had some idea about entrepreneurship or something
0: yeah so that brings me to my second epiphany so i had two epiphanies and two events the first one was going to burning man the second one was you know a few years later um i was working in los angeles at the time and i was working for this billionaire um uh he had like uh, 30 two different companies, and I was working for one of them. I was making six figures. Um, I was living in this really nice place in Santa Monica. How
2: did you get the job? Applied? Interviewed?
0: Yeah, applied. I was there for two years. I loved my boss. I, I thought, you know, that was like the dream job, you know. And then one day something happened that would kind of change my life. Um, so that company went through a layoff event. I won't get into the details why the layoff happened, um, but the result was it. Was a lot of my coworkers got laid off, mm-hmm. and my boss eventually left, and uh, he quit. And I was like, "What? Well, my job is still safe. You know, I I'm still making a lot of money. Um, it wasn't too demanding. I had this great environment. So why wasn't I getting that feeling of growth? And then at that point, I realized, okay, number one, I'm depressed. I'm I'm really sad, and every single day, the conversations are around who's going to get laid off next. And number two, I wasn't in control of my environment. And I realized that having worked in lots of different companies, that if I ever want to be in charge of my own growth path in my own growth direction, it will never align with the growth path of a company uh, long-term because once a company is formed, it's said in the articles of incorporation that the purpose of a company is to bring value to the shareholders. Not to grow the individual employees. Yeah,
2: it seems that way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then in the past, having started a couple of my own companies, I realized, you know, if I ever want to be in charge of my own growth, if I ever want to recreate that feeling of a growth spurt, then I need to set off on my own and then build my own business. Hmm. Um, So at that point, I decided, okay what can I do with the skills and the experiences that I have? And I went through this brainstorming session and then eventually I found something and that's what led me to where I am today. Um, So those two events set me down a path of growth, set me down a path of traveling around the world and eventually led me here to talk to you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to In The Spotlight. With Shirley Lynn.
2: Okay, so how do you, you start off not thinking about how you're gonna make money out of this?
0: Yeah, so at that time when the layoff happened, I, th- I said, okay, what can I do um, to kind of create something uh, that can make sustainable income and then place growth on my own terms? Oh, okay. And I realized, okay, number one, I need a freedom to kind of grow on my own terms. And this meant freedom of location, meaning that I can live and work anywhere in the world. So the business had to be uh, online or remote. Uh, and two, I had to have a freedom of time. So in order for me to grow um, in the area that I want, I have to just be free to like spend whatever time doing whatever I want. Um, so those two eventually led me to an idea of creating an online education business because I'm super passionate about education. Uh, and at that time, there were there, the demand for online courses was rising. Yes. Um, so I ended up creating um, an online course uh, that basically taught people software product management, which was what I did for my early career. Like I designed a lot of uh, different technology products that were pretty successful. It won a bunch of awards. So I was like, well, I can teach this to people uh, and I can teach it in a way that, you know, reaches people internationally. And then that eventually led to uh, me making sustainable income. Um, so that that was my business. That's my business right now.
2: And it started off as a one-man business, and it still
0: is. It still is. Because one of the reasons I realized is like, you know, I've worked in startup companies where I'm the CEO and I have a team. But once you have a team, you have to manage the team. It's yes. like being a parent, I'd imagine. Like once you have children, you kind of have to uh, be in charge of their growth. Uh, so... At this time, um, I feel like I can still get the most amount of growth being my own boss. And technology has evolved to a point where lots of these tools uh, could be leveraged to do amazing things. So I could be the designer. I could be the marketing person. I can be the product person. I can be the person creating content. And all of this just kind of all fit together. And I get efficiencies by being my own team because I never have to wait on anyone. I can just work on whatever things important. And there are times where I don't feel like working. So if the business starts to become self-sustaining, and this model fortunately is, I can decide to take a few months off and just get into a training that I really wanted or live in a different part of the world for for a month. And Mm. I had that freedom.
2: Well, it sounds like you have to be a very disciplined person, even though you don't have a nine-to-five job, but you have to make it look like you have a nine-to-five job to be disciplined and focused. Like at work. Otherwise, you can just go lazy. You mean work from work off home, right? Yeah. All you have to have to just a laptop, and then you can just do what you need to do.
0: Yeah, I think um, productivity is definitely a challenge, Mm -hmm. and I realized through experience that one of the things that helps me be productive is having an environment of other people being productive. Um, For example, um, right now I work. Uh, out of a co-working space filled with other entrepreneurs, companies. And once I get into that environment, just the social energy and the social pressure makes me feel like I want to perform. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's one hack that I discovered that really helps motivate me when I don't have a boss Mm. is to be in a social environment of other people working. And the second thing that I realized is after I find something that I feel so connected to, and if I have a mission that's so clear, like right now, the, the expertise I want to share with the rest of the world is so clear. Um, it, I have this internal drive and every day, like I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, like can't wait to just do more of this, you know? Um, and I, I think that internal drive also kind of motivates me. And when I have that internal drive um, to work on my current passion project, that's also um, eventually can lead to a sustainable business. The discipline just melts away because i don't need discipline to tell me that i'm working on something that i love already that's going to change the world now
2: what's all this thing about yoga how did that come in i mean you had a job uh, a good engineering job at nasa how long was that by the way two years okay yeah and then you got restless
0: <laughs> uh kind of uh i actually got fired oh okay <laughs> yeah i actually um through my career, there's been many times where I got fired, and there's been many times where I quit, and then eventually, I realized, okay, this is what, what I'm meant to do. Um, and not a lot of people know this, but when I was working at NASA, it was two years at two different NASA centers. At the first NASA center, I started off being an orbit engineer, and it sounds really cool, yeah. but for me, it ended up being just working in a windowless cubicle doing math models. Oh. And because I didn't have the passion for it, my work showed, and my manager eventually fired me after 9 months. Okay. Uh and then when that happened, you know, I was really depressed. But then some of the side work that I did at the time was around education and the person I did work for, they're like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened to you. Let me talk to some people." <laughs> this guy his name was Tom and Tom pretty much saved my career cuz can you imagine like, you know, starting off at your dream job and then getting fired after 9 months from your yeah, dream job. That's um, true. So then after that referral, I got another job at a different NASA center, this time in Silicon Valley. And then for them, I was working directly under the CIO. So at that environment, I had a lot of freedom over what I thought was interesting, what was impactful. And I ended up designing NASA's first iPhone app.
2: NASA's first iPhone app? Well, tune in next week to find out what all that is about and see if he got to keep that job at NASA. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin.
4: Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan.